You're listening to The South Stands, a Buckeye football podcast by Ohio State fans for Ohio State fans on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to The South Stands, everyone from San Francisco. I'm your host, Zach Moore. Today is Sunday, September the 6th, and I'm going to attempt to recap and react to all the major developments in and around college football in and around Ohio State football for you. I'm looking at a very long list of things I want to cover. So let's get right to it. I didn't think we'd get this far, and I admit it, I was wrong. We are now well into week one of the college football season. Two games were played on Thursday night. There was a six-game slate yesterday, that's Saturday. Tomorrow, Labor Day, BYU will play Navy. We're also hearing really good news out of South Bend where Notre Dame has been able to beat back coronavirus transmission and bring students back to its campus. Yesterday, the Fighting Irish reported zero positives out of 196 tests within its football program. That includes players and staff. The Irish open their season next Saturday, September 11th against Duke. We heard similar news out of Boston College where they tested 154 players and staff with zero positives. Jeff Halfley's Eagles open their season on September 19th, also against Duke. So that's some really good college football news. I wanted to lead with that. Good luck and Godspeed to all the conferences and all the programs that are pushing forward through this pandemic and playing football. In other news, we learned last Sunday, the best player in the SEC, LSU wide receiver Jamar Chase, he was last year's Bolitnikoff winner, has opted out citing in part COVID-19 concerns. It was also reported that Chase had succumbed to pressure from an agent in opting out. Now, Chase said only a few weeks ago that he was all in for the 2020 season. So I don't know, maybe watching his team try to practice with only four scholarship offensive linemen because of COVID-19 helped change his mind. We also learned the University of Georgia starting quarterback Jamie Newman has also opted out, citing coronavirus concerns. That's a pretty big loss for the Bulldogs, only a couple of weeks away from their season opener. We also learned Memphis All-American running back Kenneth Gainwell, who's already lost four family members to COVID-19, has also opted out. Now, Gainwell would have been playing yesterday, actually. Uh, Probably would have been the best player in action. Uh, So that's a big loss for Memphis. We also learned late last week the game between SMU and TCU, scheduled for September 11th, has been postponed also because of COVID-19 concerns within TCU's program. No makeup date has been set as of yet. That would have been the season opener both for the Horned Frogs as well as the Big 12 as a conference. And now that is the fourth FBS opener that's been postponed so far because of COVID-19 concerns. We also learned yesterday that the University of Tennessee held 44 players out of practice and elected not to scrimmage mostly because of coronavirus concerns. Many of those holdouts, actually the the majority of those holdouts were coronavirus related. Reports are that 28 to 29 of those players were COVID-19 related holdouts. So this is old news at this point, but earlier this week, Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic reported that according to two sworn affidavits filed by the Big Ten, the presidents and chancellors voted 11-3 to to postpone fall sports due to health and safety concerns tied to COVID-19. 
The affidavits were filed in response to the Nebraska player lawsuit against the conference, which is attempting to have the Big Ten's decision overturned. It was later reported that the three schools whose presidents voted against the postponement were, of course, Ohio State, Nebraska, and Iowa. So a lot of noise around the Big Ten over the last few weeks, last week especially. I think Pat Forty summed that up pretty well on Yahoo Sports College podcast with Wetzel, Forty, and Thamel earlier this week. I'm going to play a clip from that episode. Check it out. The two squeakiest wheels in the Big Ten are continuing to squeak out things to media people about playing October 10th, and that's Ohio State and Nebraska. And uh, so you see these various places that have ties to them putting out stories like, oh, there could be a Big Ten vote Friday or Saturday. I think that there there's at least two, maybe three, maybe more schools that are trying to see if they can muster enough presidential support to somehow turn 11-3 against into nine five in favor by the end of this week and try to get going by october 10th i think it's an extreme long shot uh i am amazed actually at the the insistence by both ohio state and nebraska to keep pumping this out there i mean ohio state's like shameless at this point it is like we i don't care you know about anything about the conference i just want us to play because we're going to be the best team and we think we have a chance for a national championship. And that is all that seems to matter, period, point blank to Ohio State. So the lobbying effort and the messaging and the behind-the-scenes agenda setting has been fairly amazing to watch. The word I heard actually about for both Gene Smith and Ryan Day was obsessed with trying to get this to happen. So when Forty says, quote, various places tied to them are putting out stories, end quote, he's referring to Dave Biddle at Bucknuts. And maybe some of the stuff we're hearing from Austin Ward at Letterman Row. Now, it was Biddle who had reported that Big Ten presidents and chancellors would be holding a revote this past week. I think it was Friday that Biddle had said we should expect a revote. Now, that never materialized. Austin Ward had reported the October 10th start date that the Big Ten was considering. Ward also wrote a strongly worded op-ed for Letterman Row in response to Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott saying that he'd like to align the Pac-12 season with the Big Ten. Now, again, it's important to remember that was Larry Scott of the Pac-12 talking about aligning with the Big Ten. That was nobody from the Big Ten with, in any official capacity talking about that kind of an alignment. But, you know, I, I've not really known Ward to write such strongly opinionated pieces and to me, it seemed like he might have been channeling someone else in that piece. So look, I, I think Biddle and Ward are really good reporters. I think Bucknuts and Letterman Row put out some really good content, especially around recruiting and game analysis. I know they're leveraging former players. I know they have access to current players and coaches. With you know, They have media credentials and can be at press conferences. So they do have some good insights there. But right now, I would not rely on either of those sites for your Buckeye news if you're interested in what's really going on behind the scenes, which frankly, nobody can say for sure at the moment. I think it's important to note that since August 11th, we have the open letter from Kevin Warren telling us the decision would not be revisited. And we have the statement from the Big Ten in response to the Nebraska player lawsuit, which was very consistent with Warren's letter. That's all we've heard from the Big Ten. Keep that in mind. And also remember that the real decision makers here are the presidents and the chancellors. So if you're hearing reports that the coaches and or ADs are planning this, 
or they're planning that. Remember, none of it matters or has any merit until it's approved by the presidents and chancellors. Just a recommendation here. But I would give Pat Forty, who writes for SI, a follow on Twitter. I would also follow and read Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports, Nicole Auerbach and Bruce Feldman of The Athletic, as well as Heather Dinich of ESPN. Now look, as national writers, they're not always going to tell Buckeye fans what they want to hear, but they're not going to peddle any false hope either, which I think is really important. I, I don't think the, some of the guys running fan sites, Ohio State fan sites, who are circulating rumors about revotes and October start dates are doing Ohio State fans any favors. I mean, that's not great fan service right now, in my opinion. It just creates this vicious cycle of false hope followed by renewed anger and disappointment when the reports don't come to fruition. So I would listen to the people who don't have a vested interest one way or another if Ohio State plays this fall, if you really want to know what's happening. I think it's important to stay rooted in reality to the extent you can. Now, I'd also recommend for really good, thoughtful, nuanced Ohio State coverage, check out our friends at cleveland.com. That's Douglas Maurice, Stephen Means, and Nathan Baird. They're covering Ohio State from pretty much every conceivable angle, and they've been doing it since the COVID-19 shutdown. Really good coverage there. I also recommend our friends Bill Landis and Ari Wasserman at The Athletic. They've been providing solid Ohio State coverage without the rumor mongering. I want to spend a few minutes talking about something that hasn't been getting a great deal of attention, which is a little surprising, actually, and that's the impact that crowds at college football games could have on COVID-19 transmission. Earlier this week, ESPN published a really good story on this topic from Kyle Bonagura entitled, Mapping College Football Crowds and COVID Risk. Go check this piece out. Now, Bonagura used anonymized cell phone tracking data from fans who attended three different college football games last season. One of them was Ohio State at Nebraska that was on September the 28th, 2019, and that's the game I want to focus on right now. According to the story, based on almost 9,000 cell phones of fans who were in attendance, people scattered to more than 30 Nebraska counties, to major cities as far away as Denver and Chicago, and to states as far away as Florida, California, Oregon, and Connecticut after attending that game. Dr. Ali Khan, who is Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, told Bonagura, quote, I know people like to call them mass gatherings, but for an epidemiologist, these are mass mixing events. A handful of people who may be infected get to mix with more individuals than they would otherwise mix with, who can then go back to multiple places. The other dynamic that comes into mass mixing events is something called super spreading events. And super spreading events are where an individual is very efficient at transmitting not just to the usual two to three people, we see with this disease, but potentially 15 to 20 people, end quote. Now we know that schools in the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 are going to attempt to bring crowds upwards of 20 to 25,000 people together for football games in cities where transmission is still very high. We've been told there'll be enhanced protocols in their stadiums requiring masks, physical distancing, paperless ticketing, and contactless payment. Now that's all fine and good. But we also know a certain percentage of people just aren't going to follow the rules. I mean, let's be honest. People are going to be lit from hours of pregame drinking heading into these stadiums. They're not going to keep their masks on. They're not going to physically distance. And they're going to be shouting and screaming, which if a person is infected, really pushes those droplets out into the air. 
There were photos from this past Thursday night, South Alabama, Southern Mississippi game circulating on social media of large groups of students gathered in the stands with no masks, no social distancing. Now, the Biloxi Sun-Herald estimated roughly 7,500 fans at that game. Under normal circumstances, that's a very small number of people. But during a viral pandemic, that's a pretty big gathering. I think the bigger question to me is not so much what happens inside the stadium during the game, although there are risks, but what happens in communities around those stadiums, both before and after games. I know tailgating has been banned by most, if not all, of these universities, but that's not going to stop people from gathering in mass at private residences, bars, and restaurants off campus. There's going to be a certain percentage of people, and probably not a small percentage if we're talking about the South, that just ain't going to follow the rules. I mean, if we've learned anything over the last six months, a very large percentage of people just are not going to follow the rules. I'm looking at a video right now on Twitter from Fox Nashville that was taken last night. Actually, this is Friday night on Broadway Street in the heart of Nashville with the sidewalks absolutely packed with people, no masks, no social distancing in front of bars and restaurants that all appear to be open for business. I'm looking at a report from Michael Casagrande of AL.com that at the University of Alabama, they've recorded an additional 846 COVID-19 cases. Now that brings the total on that campus up to almost 1,900 since students returned to campus. That's pretty crazy. The other thing is, we've not heard a peep about transmission inside the Alabama football program. They've been keeping it very tight-lipped. I think transparency into what's happening at some of these programs is a problem. They should be reporting their cases. I find it very hard to believe that Alabama isn't having the same issues that LSU, Auburn, and Tennessee are having. We're also hearing about spikes in cases at the University of Georgia and the University of South Carolina. The transmission rates in the state of Iowa are spiking right now. There's a big piece on the New York Times this morning you can read about what's happening in Iowa, especially in and around Ames, which is the home to Iowa State University, who plays in the Big 12. Iowa State announced it would attempt to play games at about 40% fan capacity earlier this week, and that was very quickly shut down by their president the following day. Thank God for that. So... Even at reduced stadium capacity, the impact of fans at SEC, ACC, and Big 12 games will have on transmission is a really big consideration that not a lot of people seem to be talking about right now. Frankly, I, I don't think you can have fans at these games. I, I just don't think it's the responsible thing to do. Late yesterday afternoon, some comments from the NCAA's chief medical officer, Dr. Brian Hainline, made the rounds on Twitter which appeared to endorse the SEC, ACC, and Big 12's push to play football this fall. A lot of contributors at fan sites like Bucknuts and Letterman Row were circulating these comments on social media. Now, Hainline's remarks were from a 30-minute interview conducted by Andy Katz. We remember Katz from ESPN, which also included Dr. Colleen Kraft, who is an associate chief medical officer at Emory University, and she's a member of the NCAA's COVID-19 advisory panel. The interview is posted on the NCAA's YouTube page. I highly suggest that you go watch the whole thing and come to your own conclusions. Now, this is the quote from Hainline that got Buckeye fans all hot and bothered. Quote, I work very closely with the SEC, Big 12, and ACC, and all of the Autonomy 5 conferences. The final recommendations were exactly aligned with the NCAA's decisions. So I'm highly confident from a decision-making point of view with regards to football, end quote. Then Hainline went on to say this, quote, nobody is denying any facts. Again, highly respected individuals are looking at the data. 
Some of it's, you know, you take a risk if you do this and a risk if you don't do that. The sort of tolerance you have in playing it out. Ultimately, the virus is going to decide. Now that last bit, ultimately, the virus is going to decide. That sounds a little ominous to me. I want to play a couple of sound bites from that same video. These are from Dr. Kraft. Again, this is from the same interview. And uh, this, this first soundbite really stood out to me. Check it out. How much of this is more about risk tolerance versus disputing actual facts that are being provided by this panel and, and all the other medical uh, uh, experts around the country? Well, I think that Dr. Hainlein said this very well, that people can look at the same information and want to try different things and try different solutions. And so, you know, there's a lot of prevailing ideas that young people, younger people are less at risk of having severe disease from this, from in, in sort of a, um, you know, mortality, morbidity statistic standpoint. So if you're looking at sort of different outcomes, you might say, well, I'm okay with it because it's not going to cause X, Y, Z. And so I think that, uh, you know, that's really one of the reasons that we're sort of seeing these different pathways. I think one of the things, though, unfortunately, that this virus is teaching us is that we can choose our pathway, but it's still going to behave in the way that it behaves in every state, in every city across the United States. So I think that, you know, we're getting a lot of immediate feedback or I would say it usually takes about a month to see if you're, you're um, the way that you have planned and uh, are trying to contain the virus is actually going to work. Uh, you, you, you get feedback by the number of cases that you end up with. Okay. I want to play one more clip for you from Dr. Kraft. There's been a lot of conversation lately about the availability of rapid testing like Saliva Direct and Binax Now. Dr. Kraft had this to say about rapid testing. The whole crux of all this is going to be supply chain. And I know that's a very ungratifying answer, um, but there are so many great tests out there. We just can't get them manufactured quick enough. And so, um, you know, my hope was that the manufacturing stream was going to pick up. NIH has um, been investing through this RADx program and giving individuals that have very good tests um, that they that they have in the preclinical realm that they can they're investing in them to basically help them operationalize their um, their uh, supply chain. But that is really what it's going to come down to. So if you want sort of a when this is going to happen, I mean, I would have thought it would have happened by now. Um, but I think. Um, I'm hopeful if there's a late peak in the flu season that maybe we'd be able to meet it with the rapid testing. So I'm going to say for the record and, you know, in, in one month you can come back or three months, but I would say February. I'm sorry, say again. I, I'm going to say February 2021. Is when this is widespread. Yep. So what I'm hearing from both Hainline and Kraft is the facts are the facts. The risks are the risks. And it's all about your risk tolerance. And the virus is going to continue to operate as it has all along. I'm not hearing or reading a ringing endorsement from either expert for playing football right now. It actually sounds more to me like they're both saying, proceed at your own risk. And with respect to rapid testing, while help is certainly on the way, and that's great news, the supply chain is just, it's not going to meet the demand for another six months if we're going to believe what Dr. Kraft has said. Again, I invite you to listen to the video in its entirety. It's really more than anything a test of your risk tolerance, but I didn't find anything that resembled an endorsement for playing football right now, and I didn't hear anything that would make me change my mind if I were a Big Ten president. But maybe that's because I have a pretty low risk tolerance when it comes to this sort of thing. 
maybe 20 years ago, if I heard this video, I'd have a different outlook on it. But at this stage, as a middle-aged guy, my risk tolerance for this sort of thing is pretty low, admittedly. Now, it's worth noting that with their resources, Power 5 conferences might be able to procure rapid testing a lot sooner than the average American. The Pac-12 just announced a partnership with Quidel Corporation to provide rapid COVID-19 testing to its athletes. According to the Athletics' Christian Capel, the conference and its members would be responsible for procurement and that Quidel would, quote, support collaborative research efforts associated with the partnership, end quote. So to me, that sounds like the Pac-12 and its schools are basically in the same boat as everyone else right now with respect to access to rapid testing. The procurement of those tests is still up to them. And it looks like the conferences, a lot of these programs are, are scrambling right now to get access to those tests. I want to spend a few minutes on Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren. Now, this is a guy, obviously, who's been getting a lot of play in the media lately. He's become, you know, pretty much a punching bag for everyone, the, the butt of a lot of jokes. But man, I feel bad for this guy. Now, I'm not going to defend the way he handled the messaging around the Big Ten's decision to postpone fall sports. But Christ, this guy's in the first year of this job, and he's dealing with the biggest crisis in the history of the conference. He's also taking all the bullets for the real decision makers, the university chancellors and presidents, which granted is a part of his job, but man, that can't be easy. I want to share a quick soundbite from Tom Mars. He's the famed sports attorney who Buckeye fans will always remember fondly for getting Justin Fields his waiver to play right away for Ohio State. This clip comes courtesy of the Conduct Detrimental podcast with Dan Wallach and Dan Lust. Check it out. I think it's very possible that Kevin Warren has been thrown under the bus. I think he would probably be the first to admit that even if he has been thrown under the bus, there's some things he would do differently. I'm not taking the pressure off of him, but I am willing to admit that he may actually be the scapegoat here. Another thing that I know will be unpopular to some people to hear is I've never said a word about his son playing football at Mississippi State because I think that's out of bounds. And I mean, it's a great talking point, but I think when you get into situations like this, at least as a lawyer, you know, there are limits and, and what his son wants to do, whether his son has the ability to go play, even if his parents don't want him to, you know, it's a family matter. And I don't think, I don't think it's fair to Kevin Warren for people to bring that up. Finally, someone who Buckeye fans might actually listen to said it. Leave this guy's son out of it. It's a family matter. His son's 21 years old. He plays in the SEC. The SEC has decided it's going to try and play football right now. Kevin Warren is not the commissioner of the SEC, and even if he was, playing football would not be up to him. It would be up to the presidents and the chancellors of that conference, just as it is with the Big Ten. Give the guy a damn break. By the way, Tom Mars has emerged as a very interesting character in this saga, and one that we might continue to hear from down the road as the season goes along. To me, he's a guy who seems to be keeping his options open. A few weeks ago, he's telling Pat Forty of SI the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 are making a decision they may soon regret. But right now, Mars is assisting Big 10 players with their attempt to get the conference's decision to postpone fall sports overturned. In his interview with Conduct Detrimental, Mars said he believes some of the Big 10 presidents may not have consulted with their boards before casting their votes, which could change the weight of those votes, obviously. Through FOIA requests, Mars intends to sift through emails of the presidents to see if he can find anything fishy. Anything that might suggest that they cast their vote without checking with their boards. Now, the intent, 
I assume, by Mars is to make public anything that he finds in these emails and put pressure on the Big Ten to revote. And with potentially more people in high places at those institutions applying pressure on the presidents and chancellors, plus the recent developments around rapid testing, I don't know, maybe a revote might have a different outcome. I invite you to listen to the entire Mars interview on the Conduct Detrimental podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. It's a really good legal sports podcast. Check it out. So how damaging have the last few weeks really been for the Big Ten? That's a big question I have right now. The athletic Stuart Mandel, who's somebody I greatly respect, seems to think there's been long-term damage to the conference's name and reputation. In his mailbag last week for The Athletic, Mandel wrote, quote, This whole saga has exposed cracks within a previously stable conference that may take years to repair. The league's failure to coalesce all the various constituents has resulted in a complete collapse in credibility and trust. Commissioner Kevin Warren did not hold that 11-3 vote of the presidents himself, but you never saw ADs and prominent coaches express anywhere near this level of dissent over even Jim Delaney's most unpopular decisions. You can't make such an extraordinary announcement and then have Nebraska's president, numerous ADs, and the most prominent coaches in the conference immediately go and undermine it, end quote. Now, Mandel is one of my favorite college football writers, and I'm not going to pretend to have anywhere close to the same insight that he does. And he's certainly not alone in his views. Lots of national writers are writing the same thing, saying the same thing about the Big Ten at the moment. Now, I guess it's just a gut feeling, but I think we're going to look back on this season and say reports of the Big Ten's demise were greatly exaggerated. There's been a lot of noise around the conference over the last few weeks from player parents, fan sites, radio personalities. We know about the lawsuit that eight Nebraska football players have filed against the conference. But most of it, even the lawsuit, which I don't think has a ton of merit, is just noise. There's been lots of thunder and lightning and wind, but how much damage has really been done here? The Big Ten is an old, sturdy oak tree with deep roots in the ground since the late 19th century. 1896. It's been through two world wars, survived the 1918 Spanish flu. Ohio State has been a member institution since 1912. The Big Ten is rooted in the school's DNA. So anybody who thinks that Ohio State's going to be leaving the Big Ten, I think you got another thing coming. That's not going to happen. So all this thunder and lightning, it may have stripped away some bark and a few branches. You know, maybe a few lawn chairs have been knocked over. But those roots are still firmly planted in the ground. The Big Ten's going to be okay. The Big Ten is not going anywhere. Players want to play and coaches want to coach. That's what they're supposed to say. Their jobs are to win football games. People can disagree and they can even get very upset, but that doesn't necessarily mean your organization is about to collapse. I'm not going to excuse the messaging gaffes around the announcement to postpone fall sports. That could have and should have been handled much better by the Big Ten. But I'm going to give the conference the benefit of the doubt here. The Big Ten has provided decades of some of the greatest collegiate sporting events we've ever seen. It has great financial resources and a reservoir of knowledge and experience to draw from. They'll get a return to play plan figured out. I would not mistake the silence right now for inaction. The plan they're attempting to put together is very elaborate with considerations that extend far beyond the football field. It's not something they're going to be able to put together overnight. 
And in the absence of information right now, I'd resist filling in the gaps with worst case scenarios, which is what many Ohio State fan sites are trying to do. And that's not serving anybody. It's just noise that makes everyone feel like shit. Now, the plan the Big Ten ultimately comes up with might not be exactly what Ohio State fans want. But in the midst of a pandemic that's taken away a lot of things from a lot of people, in many cases, things that are much more important than sports entertainment, you have to take what you can get and find a way to enjoy it. Personally, I'm going to celebrate the return of Buckeye football in whatever form it comes, whether it's late fall, winter, or spring, whether a national title is on the table for Ohio State, or it's just a conference title in a Rose Bowl. One last thing, and I know I've said this before, but the Big Ten's best laid plans won't mean a damn thing if the average fan does not do his or her part to help beat back community transmission of this virus. The great Pat Riley, who has an NBA championship ring for pretty much every finger, likes to say, you have to be an active participant in your own rescue. So if we want to rescue normalcy from the clutches of this virus, we have to be more than just angry consumers waiting to be served our sports entertainment. So wear a damn mask, socially distance, and avoid large crowds, and do those things religiously for the next three to four months, and we'll have Big Ten football back, and probably a lot of other things we love too. Okay, that's going to do it for me, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and until next week, keep your chins up, Buckeye fans. You've been listening to the South Stands, a Buckeye football podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and visit our website at southstandsosu.com.